I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True, True Crime, Crime New, New England. England. We are so fucking excited. So excited. <laughs> to finally be sitting down and doing this podcast. So exciting. We have been talking about doing a podcast about true crime. For months. For months. Months. I would even say close to a year. Close to a year. Probably. And we were just kind of joking around about it. But then, Liz, you texted me and you were like, there's nothing dedicated to true crime in New England. We have to do this. Yeah. So naturally we kind of jumped on and started talking yeah. and um so we're very excited to be able to share all the things that go on in new england that truly not a lot of people know about yeah um ironically the case we're talking about today a lot of people know about <laughs> but that doesn't take away from the fact that we are covering things that definitely aren't common for sure yeah. um so it's it's going to be really fun. We got a good case today. Yeah. Um, why don't you start, Katie, just telling the two listeners that we will have about <laughs> you, where you're from, what you do, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, so I was born and partially raised in Brooklyn, New York, but then I moved up here to New Hampshire in 2008. Um, and then now I'm working as a psych nurse, which is very, very interesting. And then, yeah, Liz, you're, you're, you're a soon-to-be nurse. Yes, I just graduated with my nursing degree. And I am currently waiting to take my nursing exam. Yes. So <laughs> nerve-wracking. Very nerve-wracking. You know. You know oh, it's you've, awful. You've done it. It's awful. Um, it's, it, if you know Katie, it does say a lot that she's a psych nurse because she is the most, like, calm, gentle <laughs> person. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe in, maybe in crisis, but yeah. after I'm, like, I'm shaking like a leaf once yeah. it's resolved. Oh I'm like, God. oh. Now, and as you, you heard, she's from Brooklyn, so she's not a real New Englander. Just kidding, she is. Um, but I, I was actually born in New Hampshire, born and raised, and I still live there to this day. Um, same town. I even worked at the hospital I was born at for four years, which is like the most New England thing. But that's so nice, though. <laughs> yeah, it was all right. That's so nice, though. It was interesting. But, yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm moving to Maine in a few months uh, to work as an OP nurse. So we are both nurses, um, which yeah. is interesting. Super exciting. And yeah. yeah, this case is kind of, it has a little personal touch to us because yes. um, we're going to cover Maura Murray and she was a nursing student at UMass Amherst. Yes. And she, uh, I think it's fair to say, was was known in the nursing community, or at least it hit kind of hard because, you know, we lost one of our own yeah. in a way. Um, and of course, this case happened in 2004, so we were five. Very young. So... <laughs> But now growing up and getting older, we kind of see the effects of that. Absolutely. Um, and her nursing does actually play a role in her uh, case because of the, the car and why they were looking for a car. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we'll get into it, you guys. Yeah. We'll it's you all the details. It's going to be really fun. Um, we're very excited to be able to share with you guys all of the stuff. We have so many stories. Um, what you guys may know of as hometowns, as if you are fans of My Favorite Murder, such as we. Um, it's basically like our t murder that got us interested in, mm -hmm. or true crime, it doesn't have to be murder, but our, you know, what got us interested in true crime. Uh, I know I have one, I know Katie has one. I feel like if you talk to anyone and say, what's something crazy that happened in your town? Everyone's gonna have something. Everybody's gonna have something. They're gonna be like, oh, it was this, you know, this kid got pushed over by a shark or whatever. Something something yeah. crazy, but if they're cool, it's a good icebreaker. Oh, yes. And that's how you know that that person's not cool or not worth your time, <laughs> is if you ask them this question and they give you a weird look or look at you like you have three heads. Oh, yeah. But if they tell you the crazy story and you guys become best friends, then they're, they're a real one. Oh, absolutely. And I'll be honest, with my ex-boyfriend, our first date, we were sitting on a park bench, very pleasant, and I told him my hometown murder story. Yeah, and he was sitting there the whole time like, wow. And I was like, you're, you are you're, something yeah, else. You're worth my time, at least for right now. <laughs> it didn't last. But anyway, um, so it's, you, you know you were right. When you meet someone who goes along with it, yeah. you know you found a good person. Absolutely. So it's, it's going to be fun. And yeah. we hope that through this podcast, everyone will get kind of a, a story or, you know, realize that true crime definitely isn't uncommon to love. Right. It's a very popular topic. Absolutely. And I feel like it's kind of a strange thing to talk about, but once you find your people, it's it's just so much fun. Yes. Agreed. It is a lot of fun. I mean, not the 
crime part. Not the, no, not the crime part. Not, but not the victims. Yeah, but. but being able to discuss with each other. Yeah. Like you said, great icebreaker. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that. So, without further ado, I think it's time we get into the case of Maura Murray. Yeah. Let's do it. Alright, so, as we said, we are going to be covering the case of Maura Murray today. She is someone who went missing um, back in 2004, and she has not been found. So, we're going to tell you all about that. Just to start, just going over some of our sources, um, I personally watched a lot of YouTube videos. I watched a small documentary called Miles to Nowhere, which was specifically about her case. Um, I also watched a YouTube video by Bella Fiore, who is a, a notable Australian true crime YouTuber, I guess. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah, she seemed to have a lot of cool stuff. Sweet. Um, I also watched something by Watch Stitch, um, a podcast about her, or I'm sorry, a video about her case and um, why a psychic would be helpful. Interesting. Yeah, that was by Todd Grande, and I also looked at um, her family's website, which is dedicated to her. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there's a podcast entirely dedicated to this case. It's called Missing Maura Murray. That was a very good resource. Um, I got some of my information from Wikipedia. That was also very helpful. Um, and then Oxygen actually did a six-part series on this case. And so I was able to watch some of that. And that was very informative. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of a lot of stuff about Maura. A lot of stuff. Um, it is important to say that this is a case that has been covered quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But... That doesn't take away its importance. Exactly. I think people who aren't so interested in true crime don't have any idea what happened here. I personally never heard of this before you mentioned it to me, and it happened not too far from where we live. Right. Um, So I think, you know, it's important to spread the word for any missing person case wherever you are. Absolutely. And I think this is a really cool case for us to start off the podcast with because it does hit so close to home, and it's it's a personal note for us because we're both nurses and yeah. she was a nursing student absolutely yeah so if you want to start off katie yeah, please we'll get right into it yeah. so this is the disappearance of maura murray um this case is regarded as the true the first true crime mystery of the social media age because it did happen in 2004 and it was right around right around the time where they were starting to use cell phones and mm-hmm. she was communicating with peers with cell phones and she used MapQuest for some of her <laughs> throwback. <laughs> yeah, seriously, for some of her GPS stuff. So yeah, this is this is the first crime mystery of the social media age, is what they're calling it. Um, yeah. So Mora was born on May fourth, nineteen eighty two, in Hanson, Massachusetts. She has four siblings, or she's the youngest of four, and she lived primarily with her mom after her parents divorced when she was six years old. Um, she did go to Whitman Hanson High School, and she ran track there, and she also ran track in college. She was a very good track She's athlete. A really great track athlete. She's like an all-American. Yeah, she was known for having, and I don't run. I don't even like walk upstairs well. She <laughs> was known for having like a five-minute, forty-second mile. Yeah, she was very fast. She broke records. Yes, she was very talented, and yeah. not to mention very smart. Very, very smart. Yeah, yes. it was really sweet because um, in school, her and her sister, her older sister Julie, would kind of compete with each other to see who could break records, and <laughs> they were they were both all stars. They were phenomenal runners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But she was brilliant. She ended up going to West Point Military Academy. She went for chemical engineering. That is no joke. That's no joke. It's, <laughs> it's so crazy. And if you don't know, West Point is a major military It's very college. prestigious. It is so hard to get into. Yes. Very prestigious. Very, uh, you have to be very disciplined, yes. for sure. Um, it's also important to note that her boyfriend went there. Yeah, that's where they met. It's, yes. Yeah, her boyfriend, Bill, he was a little older than her, but they met at school. Yes. Yes. Um, so, for her to transfer to UMass Amherst, or University of Massachusetts Amherst, for those who are not familiar... <laughs> Um, she went to pursue nursing, but there were some extenuating circumstances that led to her transfer. Um, so while she was at West Point, her and a friend were just shopping around at the mall and she actually got caught shoplifting a couple things. Um, nothing of crazy value, just like some small things. Um, her friend said nail polish or makeup or something little. Five dollars, I think is what they said. Five dollars worth. So small, but you know, it's, it's West Point and Liz, as you said, you have to... It's very prestigious and very disciplined. So yes. 
um, being expelled from West Point would look like such a huge red flag. So it, that is not what you want in your record. Right. So Mora actually transferred to UMass Amherst, and it, it did work out because that's where she started pursuing nursing. Yes, and I, I think it is important to note um, when she was at West Point, she it was noted like in her records she was pulled out of class seven times total in 2001 to be put against the honorary uh, the honor board um, for her discipline and ultimately when she moved or when she transferred to UMass Amherst she uh, did that while they were in the process of expelling her so it basically came down to her um, beating the paperwork that yes. said okay she was expelled and it's also interesting because I read somewhere that um, she signed papers to make it so that her parents couldn't see her medical records and her disciplinary actions. Oh, wow. So she basically, and I, I think it's fair to say that I feel like I would do the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. You're an adult, you're in college. Exactly. They don't need to. Exactly. They don't need to be all up in your business right. all the time. <laughs> right, some privacy. Yeah, so she did that. Um, so I think that's really important to note because she did sign so that her parents had no idea. Right. And that's important. But then she went to UMass Amherst, where, like you said, she started nursing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this brings us kind of three months before Maura Murray's disappearance. So she ended up getting into some trouble, some more trouble. She had used a stolen credit card. Um, one source says several restaurants, and one source said she had tried to use it to order pizza. Yes. So it ended up being kind of a sting operation where they sent the police to deliver the pizza to her. <laughs> and when she signed for the pizza with the stolen credit card, they were kind of like, okay, yeah, here we go. Um, she ended up getting off pretty light for that punishment. Um, I believe she was on probation. It was probation, yeah. Yep. yep. And, you know, it's credit card fraud, so. It's not, it's a... It's important. That's not good. That's, right. It's, yeah. Not, especially for a nursing student. It's not something ugh. you want to have on your record. Absolutely. Um, I also read somewhere that, you know, when doing research about this crime in particular, just to see kind of like the background, um, the police, when they confronted Mora about this, um, she claimed that she got the number off of a receipt in the trash. But, like, at school. But mm -hmm. they found that when she went to turn over the receipt, there wasn't any indication of, like, a credit card number. It wasn't possible right. to get that off of the, you know, off of the receipt. So when they said, okay, you didn't get this clearly off the receipt, she said, okay, fine. She handed them another piece of paper, and it had several credit card numbers on it. That's what I read on um, James Renner's website mm -hmm. um, for her case specifically which wow. I thought was interesting because it's just two different stories yeah um so it's you know kind of shows that maybe she had other plans as well regarding credit card fraud yeah but absolutely. either way yeah, she was caught as you said right yeah and um this kind of really shocked her family and friends because she wasn't known to lie or be a liar about anything she was very very honest and always very upfront and forthcoming with information like this and so this was kind of one of many incidents we'll talk about um kind of like a, a pattern of lying almost that really really surprised and unnerved her family and friends yeah so let's start with february 5th yes in 2004 mora worked as uh, i think security guard isn't the right word but like a desk yeah. someone who checks in people when they come into like a dorm building mm -hmm. or um like a college building um so she was like a security guard at her school at UMass Amherst, and it was around 10 p.m. she got a phone call from her older sister, Kathleen. Now, Kathleen had just left rehab. She was in rehab for alcoholism, and Kathleen was calling her little sister, Mora, to tell her that she and her fiancé were on the way to the liquor store as she spoke. She was basically relapsing right now. And as you can imagine, that upset Mora a lot. Absolutely. I mean, you've no... You have no control over that. You're at work. You're sitting at a desk at work. You're it's powerless. Late. Yeah. It's late at night. What are you supposed to do for your older sister? Like, I, I would feel so helpless. So helpless. Awful. So, Mora, um, her supervisor described it as a catatonic state. Her supervisor came to check on her, and she noticed that Mora was just sitting and staring blankly, and she wasn't checking people in or checking IDs or really, she wasn't doing her job really she was just sitting there and she was very very upset and so her supervisor ended up bringing her back to her dorm room because Mora had um, a breakdown at the desk and all that Mora would say to her supervisor when the supervisor asked her hey you know are you okay what's going on can I talk to you all she could say was my sister mm -hmm. 
So clearly she was disturbed or very upset about what happened. As we all would be if you found out in real time that your sister was relapsing with her alcoholism. Immediately after being picked up from rehab. That's horrible. That's terrible. Very hard. Um, I think it's also important to note here that uh, at this point in time, Maura lied to her supervisor about having a roommate, which yeah. is key. Yeah, that's right, because her supervisor brought her back to her room and was hesitant to leave her alone and said, you know, is there anybody you can talk to? Is there anybody mm -hmm. I could call for you? And she said, no, I'll be fine. I have my roommate. My roommate's here. Mm -hmm. But Maura did not have a roommate. She lived alone. Yeah. Um, let's now move on to February 7th, which is the Saturday. That is the next day um, of notable yes. occurrences. So her family lived in Connecticut. At, her father lived in Connecticut at the mm -hmm. time. So her father, Fred, who later will be made a pretty big part of this huge. investigation. Yeah, huge. Um, he went visiting to Mora at UMass Amherst, mm -hmm. brought his nice new car down, yep. and they went used car, car shopping for Mora yes. um, that day. And it was, and this is that nursing connection, she needed a car for her clinical placements. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, when you're in nursing school, you are sent all over the place doing you know, your mental health rotation, your baby rotation, just, you know, your general old people. Yeah. You go to all... Medical, surgical, everything, you, you go to everywhere. Yeah. So I know personally for me, I haven't... I spent a lot of time driving. There was one clinical I had that was two hours away. Wow. Yes. You do a lot for nursing school. Yeah. So naturally, she needed a new car. Yeah. So her and her dad went car shopping. Used car shopping. Used car shopping. Responsible. Yeah, and it's also important to note that um, Maura really didn't feel as though her car would be able to get her safely to clinical. Her car was in pretty rough shape, mm -hmm. um, and her dad agreed that maybe it wouldn't be the best fit for her to keep driving that car to clinical when you need a reliable vehicle to get to these places for school. Mm -hmm. So her car, um, it was it was described as a hot mess. It was <laughs> it really was not a safe car to be driving, especially mm -hmm. this is now February, so right. it's kind of precarious to be driving any cars on some of these roads in, in February in New Hampshire and Mass. Right. So, yeah, Gets her dad was just trying to look out for her and right. go car shopping. Yeah, so they they went car shopping, got dinner at a pub, mm -hmm. and then while they were out, Maura got a phone call from her buddy that said, hey, there's a party tonight. Who among us wouldn't be like, hey, girl. Yeah, Saturday night. <laughs> Let's good. do it. Bye, Dad. Bye, Bye Dad. Dad. <laughs> and it's actually funny because her dad helped, like, took her and her friend to the liquor store. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, she was 21. Maura was 21. Yeah, so it wasn't like, you know, something shady. They, they <laughs> right. went to the liquor store together. Right. And in which they bought liquor, and then from there, Fred went to his motel. Maura took the car with her friend. The brand new car. Brand new, might we add. Took that car, went to a party. Went to the party. And then she actually had gone to the pub with her father and her friend Kate. And so she met up with her friend Kate again at the party and also one of her friends, Sarah. So they were both at the party. Um, so she arrived at the party around 10.30 p.m. that night. And she didn't leave until around 2.30 a.m. the next morning. So now this puts us at Sunday, February 8th. Mm -hmm. So she's driving home from the party to her father's motel to bring him back his car that he so kindly allowed her to drive. Brand new. Brand new. And she's driving home, and at 3.30 in the morning, she strikes a guardrail. It's a single car accident. She strikes a guardrail headed back to the motel, causing almost $10,000 in damages to her father's brand new car. Yes. Brand new car. And then what I thought was a little suspicious that I saw in one of my sources was that there was no documentation of any field sobriety tests being right. conducted on the scene when the police officer came and responded to the accident. Right. So that that was something to note too, because you'd think, you know, you see a young girl, a twenty one year old girl, clearly in college, right, driving home at two thirty, three thirty in the morning on a Saturday night and it's a single car accident. That's mm -hmm. I feel like that's that's protocol. That's something that you would do absolutely almost immediately once seeing that she's okay. And that's not to say we're assuming she was drunk. Right. I'm not saying that everyone who leaves a party at 2 a.m. is drunk. Right. I think it's important for us to say that it is possible she was drunk. Absolutely. Or at least a little inebriated. Mm -hmm. So doing a field sobriety test would be very important. Absolutely. It would just confirm, you know, what's going on and it would really help with the cause of the accident for insurance purposes too. So that was... Exactly. That was something that would have been very helpful. Right. 
Um, so the police officer ends up driving her back to the motel to stay with her dad. And at 4.49 in the morning, she made a call to her boyfriend, Bill, from her dad's phone. Um, and it wasn't really clear. The source I read, it wasn't really clear what they talked about, but it was kind of a strange hour. It was 4.49 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, she seemed very distraught. Very distraught, very upset. And they agreed to talk later on that day once mm-hmm. they both went to bed and, you know, slept on it. And they, they had agreed to talk later on that day. Yeah. And so this is the part where I think that's a good dad because he was like, it's okay. It, insurance will, co- will cover it. And this is, we're talking, like you said, $10,000 $10, worth of damage on a brand new wow. car. Yes. That's very significant. So, and it's, it's, I read this in several articles, watched in several videos. He was so chill. He was like, insurance, you're fine. He was very reassuring to her. I don't know if he knew she was drinking or mm-hmm. if, you know, that kind of thing. But he, it was clear that he um, really cared for his daughter and said, it's okay. These things happen. Insurance Absolutely. will cover it. And he he was actually kind enough to um, just not let it go, but say, let's move on from this. Yeah. Crazy. Absolutely. And I wonder, too, if he was being so reassuring and if she was so upset because she was still during this time on her probation period from the credit card the right. credit card fraud thing. So I wonder if she was really, really, really upset and freaking out because, you know, she was still on probation and this really would not look too hot. No, not at all. So I wonder if her dad was trying to keep her calm and console her. Right. You know, it'll all be okay. Yeah. This is awful, but we'll get through this. It's Absolutely. okay. I'm just glad you're okay. Yeah. So basically, Fred rented a car and drove mm-hmm. home to Connecticut. Yes. And let, well, he dropped Mora off at school. Um, later that night, uh, they shared a phone call mm-hmm. and basically... Again, he was so kind and just said, just in case, you should pick up these insurance papers tomorrow um, so we can fill them out and it, like, covers our asses. Yes. Great. Smart. Good thinking, Fred. That's what, that was all their phone call was. It wasn't, I don't think it was much more than that. No, yeah, they just kind of agreed that she would go pick up the insurance papers from the DMV or it was the Registrar of Motor Vehicles or something. Something, yeah. The, whatever the Massachusetts <laughs> we don't alternative know. is. Yeah. We're from New Hampshire. <laughs> Yeah, but they they had agreed that she would get the papers just to be safe, and they could fill out the insurance claim together over the phone the next night. Well, that phone call never happened. That phone call never happened. They never were able to fill out that insurance uh, paperwork, and... Yeah, that I, was the last time that Fred saw his daughter, and, unbeknownst to him. Yeah, which is very unfortunate. So I think, obviously, that brings us into the morning of Monday, February 9th. Yes. This is 2004. Yep. Um, first thing in the morning, what does she do? She looks up MapQuest, which again, throwback. (laughs) I don't think I've heard of MapQuest since I was like driving to Disney at like five years old. (laughs) That's a good one. But she did, she looked up, she went on MapQuest and she was looking to go to Burlington, Vermont. Yes. That's what she searched anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and she did end up printing that out because it was later found in her car. Yep. Um, but she also, in a lot of things happened this day. And some of the timeline can be kind of confusing. There's mm-hmm. a lot of emails sent and phone calls made. Um, she did email her boyfriend in the morning. So she emailed her boyfriend um, and the email said, I love you more, Stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call you later today, though. Love, Mora. Standard. Yes. 2004 emails. There you go. I would, over email. I would swoon if somebody <laughs> called me stud. Honestly, that's very sweet. It's very sweet. I, I know. Their relationship was... So, on the outside, yeah. On the outside, to their parents, to both sets of their parents, their relationship looked really, really great. I mean, they met at West Point. He was a little older than Maura, but they had agreed, you know, marriage would be something they'd be interested in once Maura graduated school. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Unfortunately, that was just the outside. That was... Yeah. The inside... Not so mutually exclusive, I would say. No, yes. So, um, Maura's boyfriend, Bill, it turns out once she transferred schools, he had been cheating on her with a girl who also went to West Point, and Maura's sister actually found out and let Maura know. Um, And Maura, I can imagine, was pretty upset, but this was not a one-sided thing, Mm -hmm. as Maura was also having an affair, an outside relationship with her track coach. Yeah. So they, they both were kind of cheating on each other. It was a rocky, troubled relationship, but 
everybody on the outside thought it was perfect. I mean, Fred <sighs> Morris' dad said that they were engaged to be engaged. They, exactly. They were perfect for each other. And on the Miles to Nowhere, the Maura Murray case that I watched, um, the mother of Billy, her name was Sharon, she was saying, oh, I knew from right at the beginning that they were going to get married. They were so in love. Well, you know, it. their inside relationship kind of tells a different story. Absolutely. For sure. But she did email him that morning. Yes. That was one of the things she did. She also called a hotel mm-hmm. in Bartlett, New Hampshire, yeah. to make a reservation, but she was denied. She was denied. They did not make uh, allow her to make a reservation. No. And then something to note about where she tried to rent um, this place in Bartlett, New Hampshire, this is where her family had rented for their own vacations. Um, so her dad, later on, will say that he was pretty convinced that that's where she was headed because it was familiar to her. Mm-hmm. She knew the area, and she had been there on multiple occasions to go hiking, fishing, just hang out with her family. So she'd been there many a time before, but they did not let her rent this place. Right. She also called another um, place in Vermont, Stowe, Vermont, Mm -hmm. I believe is what it called. It was 1-800-GO-STOW, and it was a, another, like, Airbnb, well, I don't know if Airbnbs were really a thing. Yeah, it was like a, like like a hotline kind of for, yeah, yeah, yeah. like a reservation hotline, essentially. Um, she did call another number, and I don't believe she got a reservation for that as well. No, the line was down, so all right. she could really do, it was just kind of playing her an automated message of um, availabilities for different places, but she wasn't able to book anything. She could just listen to the message, and that call lasted about five minutes. Right. Um, the One of the last things she did on her phone while she was in her dorm was email her professors and work. And this is the part where... You know, her family kind of goes, okay, what the hell? Because Mora emailed and said, and this was about 1.30 in the afternoon, just around. Mm-hmm. She emailed her professors and her work and said, I can't be in work this week. I have a death in the family. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy is that there was no death in the family. And nobody died. So. Nobody died. There was, And there wasn't even like a family emergency no. um, that she was just saying, like generalizing somebody died. Nobody died. There was no problem. So... That's kind of bizarre. So she sent that email, and I mean, basically from there, that's where it really started to just get bad. It kind of goes downhill. So at 2.18 p.m. in the afternoon, she left her boyfriend a voicemail promising that they would talk later. The call overall lasted a minute. Mm -hmm. And then it seems as though she packed up a bunch of things into her car. She packed her clothing her college textbooks, her toiletries. Um, the source I read also mentioned she packed her birth control pills. I'm not sure why they like to mention these things, but... Because <laughs> woman. Like, leave her, yeah, me, leave her me alone. woman. She, she can pack what she wants. Yeah. Leave her alone. Um, and then it also said that she had packed her dorm room up into boxes, but this is kind of the part where it was disputed because once she went missing and police went into her dorm room, they found all of her belongings packed in boxes, so they weren't sure if she had packed up all of her stuff before she left or if she simply had not unpacked because this was also it was a Monday it was the first day of the new semester Mm -hmm. just back from winter break essentially right so they're wondering if she either packed up all of her belongings to take with her or Mm -hmm. indicate that she wasn't coming back or if she just simply hadn't had time to unpack I know it does take me like six weeks to unpack it's awful it's (laughs) terrible it always takes forever because you're so I mean you're at college like ugh. and there's stuff going on yes classes you want to be social it's it's yeah so I I think you know that's a good point to bring up because you really don't know she really could have just left them untouched from when she moved back in um at this point it's around 3 30 p.m and she makes a stop at the atm Mm -hmm. where she takes out almost all of the money in her bank account which is 280 dollars yeah from there she goes to a liquor store i mean can't say i blame her (laughs) but at the liquor store, she bought a whole bunch of stuff. Wine, mm-hmm. boxed wine. Yes, very important. Boxed wine. Yes, yes, important. She bought vodka. Mm-hmm. She bought Bailey's, and she bought Kahlua. Interesting combo. She sure did. But yeah. those are. I mean, listen. I'm not going to judge on mixed drinks, okay? <laughs> I'm drinking a White Claw right now. How 2020 am I? <laughs> Jeez. Anyway. Yeah. So this cost her about forty dollars worth. Um, and she also made a stop to pick up the accident report forms. Which is interesting because... Those forms never, never ended up being filled out. Exactly. So, which, but it also kind of gives like a theory like, oh shit, 
uh, also gives a theory that she, it seems like she intended on filling the mountain, doing that with her dad. Absolutely. She, she had further plans. She had future plans. Right. And then the fact that she packed her textbooks with her, her nursing textbooks. Right. I know that if I were planning on, you know, skipping town and running away, I, school would be the last thing I was concerned about. Yeah. Packing my heavy nursing school textbooks would be the last thing I was concerned with. Oh my gosh. So this makes me think that she really did intend to come back to school after the week was up. Absolutely. Because she did in the email, she did say to her, her work supervisor and faculty that she would be back and she would let them know when she was coming back after the week was up for the supposed family death. Right. So... 4.37-ish in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. She's, supposedly she's driving, and she makes the last known phone call on her phone, and it's just to call her voicemail. Um, Which is, I know you guys, you might be younger generations, you used to have to call, like, a certain number to get to your voicemail, which was, I still have to do that on my home phone. It's so (laughs) annoying. Um, Obviously now on, like, your iPhone, your Android, you don't have to do that. But 2004... She had her, her map quest in one hand and her flip phone in the other. <laughs> She's checking her voicemail. Checking her voicemail. But that yes. was the last known time that her mm-hmm. um, phone was used. And this is also important, and it will be known why very shortly. Yeah. So this is where it gets real. So after 7 p.m., a woman in Woodsville, New Hampshire, she heard a loud thump. So she looked out of her window and she saw a car up against a snowbank. And this is on Route 112 in in New Hampshire. (laughs) So at 7.27 p.m., she called the Grafton County Sheriff's Department to report the crash. And she said that she saw, this is where it gets kind of funky. Mm. She said that she saw a man smoking a cigarette inside of the car. Yes. But later on, she goes to retract the statement. And all she said that she was positive that she saw was a glowing red light on the inside of the car. Right. And she thought it could have been from a cell phone. Exactly. So it could have been more on her cell phone. Mm -hmm. Although, as we just said... That was the last time her cell phone, um, when she made the call to the voicemail, was used. At least it got through. Right. Because it is also very important to note, in this por- portion of the woods, you are not going to get cell service. There's no way. No way. That happens a lot <laughs> up here. <laughs> or just dead zones. Dead zones. I'll be driving through a main road. I'm like, oh. <laughs> my Wi-Fi, my music stopped. <laughs> happens yeah. everywhere. Suddenly I have no service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Weird. No boonies up here. <laughs> oh my god. So... I think that's an, an interesting point, is that yeah. she could have seen a cell phone, but she initially said it was a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there was any cigarettes found in her car. No. So that's another interesting thing to note. Yes. So this woman saw Mora in the car. Also, there was a bus driver who was driving his route. His name was Butch Atwood. Mm-hmm. Classic New Hampshire yes. name. <laughs> Whatever you picture him looking like, you're right. Because that is such a butch, like, such a great name. But anyway, he sa- says that he saw Mora, like, one minute after the crash. Mm-hmm. Her airbags were deployed. Yes. And uh, she had windows smashed. Um, he also said that it didn't look like she had any blood on her. It didn't look like that she was injured, just that she was kind of dazed, as mm-hmm. you would be if you just crashed your car. Yeah. Um, so he obviously was concerned. Very concerned, yeah. And he said... He, there was an open, like, Coke bottle in the car, but it didn't smell like, like, it was overpowering with, like, alcohol smell. Mm -hmm. So they're almost wondering, did she put alcohol in the Coke bottle? Right, was she drinking and driving? There was this box, the box of wine, as we mentioned, was spilled in her backseat. Yeah. So that is important, um, because it does kind of go with this theory, like, did she drink and drive and disguise it like as a coke bottle right um it's also important <laughs> to mention that butch didn't call the police right away because there was no service There's no service he had to go home first he had to go home and so he said to mora do you want me to call the police or i'm gonna call the police and she said it's okay i've called triple a she did not call triple a now, this could be because there's no cell service, mm-hmm. but on her phone, there was no record of her even typing in that number. Right. Nothing went through. Some of the theories say that she didn't actually call AAA and she told Butch that because she didn't want the police to come mm-hmm. because she was drinking. Right. And she was also on probation that's right. in Massachusetts for credit card fraud. Mm-hmm. So obviously, if you could, you know, that's a big deal. This is terrifying for her. And then she she had already crashed her father's car. Two days earlier. Two days prior. Yeah. And now, the way that Butch described 
the car was the windshield on the driver's side was completely cracked. Liz, as you said, the airbags were deployed. Completely, yeah. The car, the way that the car, the front of the car is the impact, mm -hmm. it was, there's no way you could drive it. No. There's no way that you could drive it. And it so, was totaled. It was absolutely totaled. And so one of the theories is, you know, this young girl is vulnerable mm -hmm. on the side of the road. She can't drive her car away. And there's this strange man you don't know. Yep. So maybe she lied to get him to go to away. go away. She was maybe she was scared. Um, but in one report, it was said that she pleaded him not to call the police. Mm -hmm. She was she absolutely begged him and begged. pleaded him yeah. not to call the police. No, 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 it's fine, it's fine. Um, but yeah, he knew that there was no there's no way she could have called AAA. There's no cell reception. Yeah, and he knew that he lived just seven minutes down the road. Right. He could see. He could look out of his window and see the car crash from his home. Yeah. So he made it home and he called the police and this was at 7.43 p.m. And at 7.46, that's when police arrived yes. to her car. The car was locked and nobody was there. Mora was nowhere to be found. Um, it's also important to note that all of her stuff was in the car. Not only um, like her phone and the map quest, but also um, the alcohol and like receipts saying that she had just recently purchased the mm -hmm. alcohol. So that was all in her car still, but Mora was nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. And so by the time that this man had seen her and driven home and the police arrived, it's only a seven minute window where nobody mm -hmm. was, you know, the neighbors had gone back to their business and, you know, nobody, nobody was watching her really able to account for her whereabouts for that seven minute gap until the police arrived. Um, so seven minutes, not a long time, but long enough for someone to go missing Mm -hmm. and stay missing for the past 17 Clearly, years. Yeah. That's insane. Insane. So now we're looking at about 8 o'clock that night. Um, Butch, the bus driver, had come out to help the police search, and EMS had arrived to secure the scene. And so while they're looking around the perimeter, seeing what's going on, they noticed that a rag was found stuffed in the car's tailpipe. And so that was very, that was something that they thought was very suspicious. Mm -hmm. Turns out it wasn't. Turns out it was not suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> I guess a technique back in back in the old days. I don't know if they still do this. I don't. I don't know. Her dad had taught her to put a, a rag, rag in the tailpipe tail to stop. I think noise, right? Or um, smoking, smoking or something, so you can get yeah, so you couldn't get pulled over for like you know or right. cause just, trouble. Just to get slowly down the road, just to get somewhere right to a gas station or something right. down the road without being pulled over on the way if your car was really really in that mm -hmm. kind of a shape. So, clearly, it appears malicious right off the bat. Like, oh, a rag in your tailpipe? Yeah. Someone was trying to, like, suffocate you? Or, nope, her father claims immediately that that was just an old trick he taught Right, her. that was his advice. Interesting advice. So, it seems as though she had put the rag in the tailpipe after the car crash. Mm -hmm. Because on the Oxygen series that I saw, a, a mechanic actually replicated her car and the condition it would have been in. And... He said that if someone had tried to maliciously put a rag in her tailpipe and cause her to break down along the way, maybe follow her, sure. that driving, it would have popped out. Yeah. Makes um, sense. Yeah. And then with the impact, too, the way that her car was with the impact, it also would have fallen out. Absolutely. So she would have had to have put the rag in the tailpipe after the crash. Yep. Yep. So that was it. That was the last time anyone saw Maura Murray, mm -hmm. dead or alive. She has not been seen since. And now we're going to talk about, I think there's a lot of... There's a lot. There's a lot of theories on what happened to Mora. Um, I think some important things to mention, though, before we go into that is she wasn't reported missing for... A, like, they thought she was a runaway, essentially. Absolutely, yeah. Um, for the first at least 24 hours. Mm -hmm. It was 5 o'clock the next day where they were like, okay. They officially put out the, the statement. They yep. said something is wrong. Mm-hmm. Part of that was because, and this is important, there were no footprints. We're talking February in New Hampshire. On a, a back road. It snows at least every millisecond here <laughs> in, the, in the winter. We get a lot of snow. So much snow. And in February, I'll be honest, that's a peak month. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the fact that there, excuse me, was no footprints says a lot. Yeah. And so when they did end up doing the search... Um, they used search dogs to try to pick up a scent and they used one of her gloves or one of her mittens to get a scent. And the dogs were able to track her scent a hundred yards up the road 
and then it just it went dead and it stopped it stopped now her dad does say you know he's frustrated he doesn't like that it stopped so quickly i wouldn't like that either he's you know trying to get defensive he's saying that's a brand new glove she got it for christmas it's now the beginning of february she's barely worn it they need something with more of a scent mm -hmm. i don't think they ever followed through with that no they didn't so she, well, that is a fair point, I guess. You know, yeah. maybe he thought, really, there isn't a lot of her scent on it. She, they're brand it's new. Brand new, yeah. So that is a theory, um, but they never went and got, like, a jacket or something from her school no, to try like it they again. No, never ended up following through with that. Right. So, of course, you know, you have a, a dog and it tracks her scent for 100 miles, or 100 miles, 100 yards, and it just stops. What do you think? Right, you automatically think, oh, a car must have came and she she was picked up. Absolutely. Because I mean, the scent stopping and then no footprints in the snow—that suspicious. It's pretty indicative of, of something going on. And now here's the thing, though. There's a few different theories. Yeah. Of course, as you do, um, and you brought up an interesting one to me earlier about tandem driving. Yes. So we so want the tandem explain. driver theory. So you had actually mentioned. This author, James Renner, he wrote a book, True Crime Addict, How I Lost Myself in the Mysterious Disappearance of Maura Murray. Very good. So he proposed a tandem driver theory that a lot of other people have seemed to like and agree with. Mm -hmm. So he theorized that maybe, well, his theory goes a little, a little deeper, um, <laughs> that her father actually said, no, there's no way. So he actually proposed that she might have disappeared with a tandem driver willingly because of her credit card fraud case. Right. Um, like she was the running car away. Accident that she was running away. Okay. And he theorized that maybe this this crime could prevent her from becoming a nurse. Which is fair on top of everything else. On top of everything else. Yeah. So she's, she, she had a really hard weekend, and then now on top of all this, she just crashed her car in a snowbank. Mm -hmm. So he's wondering if this, this whole thing was planned. Mm -hmm. um, her father immediately disputes that theory. He says, there's no way I believe that my daughter was abducted and she is dead. Which, again, like almost the opposite of the tandem driving theory, is that she was picked up by a stranger. Yes. In which then she was abducted and murdered. Um, which is, I mean, that's absolutely possible. Mm -hmm. Just as possible as it would be for that tandem driving theory. Right. There's a lot of weight to that. But either way, it's kind of c conclusive that her tra her trail stops 100 yards forward. You know, that just doesn't happen. You she was just, picked up by somebody. She was picked up in another car. Absolutely. So, yeah. and that's not so hard to believe because she's, you know, a young, pretty girl. And it's getting dark. It's February 7, you know, 40 at night. It gets dark at like 4 p.m. Yes, yeah, so it's February. Pitch black. It's dark. And it's cold. Freezing. She's freezing, guaranteed. And she's definitely shaken up. I would be. Absolutely. So the first person that comes to pick her up that, I mean, I know Butch, maybe the he theory. Tried, yeah. Yeah. And maybe the theory is that it was like a handsome young man or mm. someone who didn't appear threatening like somebody named Butch would be. But <laughs> this I'm just older kidding. Man, yeah. This older, yeah. scary looking guy. I'd be scared. I would be scared. I'm always scared. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, maybe if it wasn't like an attractive young man mm -hmm. or even just like a girl. Right. Or someone closer to her age, maybe that she, she felt like she could trust or rely on because she's she's so vulnerable she cannot drive her car and it also there is of course the theory that she's not sober at right. the moment so her inhibitions are clearly mm -hmm. not where they usually are yes um and so also with with the tandem driver theory that um james renner kind of elaborated on with the the whole nursing career theory um it was thought that she because of all of the alcohol that she purchased it's kind of a lot for one person that is a lot it is yeah i mean not to judge anybody and no no if no. she was planning on going for a week i can see but even then it's still kind of a lot for one person mm -hmm. so they were thinking that she had purchased all this alcohol because she was going to meet somebody else perhaps an affair mm -hmm. or maybe or a, friend. a friend yeah and so part of the tandem driver theory is that maybe she was following someone and once this person saw that she was no longer in their rearview mirror or that, you know, they weren't behind them anymore, this driver, maybe a friend, hopefully a friend, yeah. had turned around to check on Mora and had picked her up in that seven-minute window that it took mm -hmm. for the police to get there and for someone to put eyes on her. Absolutely. Which is, you know, in the world where if a lot of bad things happen, you want to believe that she was picked up and she's safe. However, like I said, it's been 17 years. And they would have come forward and been like, hey. Or even if Maura was supposed to meet somebody else mm -hmm. 
and she never made it there. Somebody would have. Which seems like I feel as though someone would have come forward and said, Mora was supposed to meet me. Right. Right. So it's it's troubling. And Mm -hmm. I think as her parents and her family, that must have felt very scary. And what's even worse is that the police claim no evidence of foul play. Which is insane. It seems like they're go-to. Way too often. <laughs> it seems like they're go-to. Oh my oh, god, that's suspicious. Everything's great. Law enforcement, is it? yeah, loves to just sweep it under the rug. Yeah. I mean, even not even just in the town where this occurred or New Hampshire police. This happens all over the Everywhere. place. Everywhere, all the time. Everywhere. So it's crazy. It's it's so frustrating. They literally said, and I quote, "She has the right and privilege of leaving on her own." Yes ridiculous yes she's 21 she's not a minor but (laughs) come on and then the police also made a statement um the police had said that she was endangered and possibly suicidal and they also had stated in a press conference release on february 12th this was around three o'clock in the afternoon um they had released that she was intoxicated at the crash site but um, the school bus driver, Butch, had said that he, when he was talking to her, he didn't, he didn't see as though she was intoxicated. He, she didn't seem to be, mm-hmm. you know, inebriated in any way. They had More a conversation. More just shocked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so that says a lot. Yes. Um, and so then a week after Maura's disappearance, um, the father and the boyfriend were interviewed by CNN's American Morning, and the family had also expanded the search to Vermont because that's right. where she had her looked up. Quest. For Burlington, yeah. Absolutely. So when they expanded the search to Vermont, the family was really upset that the authorities there had not been informed of her disappearance. Right. Which it was is just very localized. strange because clearly the map quest for Burlington, Vermont is in her car. So if she was meeting with a friend, right, then or that's maybe where someone they were picked going. her up and that's where they were headed. Exactly. So the family was very, very upset by the fact that nobody in Vermont, nobody in the area where it looked like she was headed was notified that, that she was even missing. Right. That blows my mind. Yes. Ignorance. Ignorance. It, it, it just blows my mind. Some of the, the mishandling of evidence and, and of the case in itself in this case. It's, and there, just, it's so sad. There's a lot of random little things that come mm-hmm. up. For one thing that I found was that one of Maura's sisters found a pair of underwear yes. in the woods not too far. It was female underwear. Not too far from where the crash was and it was partially this wasn't like immediately after it was i think within the weeks yeah where they were trying to search yeah and so she found a pair of women's underwear and it was like partially buried like under snow but like not so buried that it was months ago Mm -hmm. but that it was recent enough so that was one you know theory that kind of played into it i i did not believe that anything came back with that pair of underwear it was inconclusive it was inconclusive yes um, so what was strange about this is that 10 days after Morris' disappearance, the FBI joins the case and gets involved. And usually when the FBI gets involved, it takes them a lot longer than 10 days. They usually will let the state handle it, mm-hmm. but they, they very quickly join this case. Um, and then once the FBI joined the case, the case went nationwide. And I think a lot of that is also credited to social media, mm-hmm. like you said. Um, and having an FBI case in New Hampshire is like... It's, it's pretty unheard of. Pretty insane. Yeah. That's like a starstruck moment. Like, oh my god, this is a SWAT wow. team. <laughs> the FBI in our little state. In our little, our little innocent little yeah. sleepy. Yeah. That doesn't happen. It does not happen. So the fact that the FBI got involved is significant. Absolutely. So another theory about what could have happened to Mora relates to something that happened in late 2004. So July 1st, this is when they all do a fourth overall search. And this is the first search without snow on the ground because it is New Hampshire. It's, it's pretty up north if she was headed to Vermont. It's mm-hmm. pretty up north. Um, snow doesn't, we, we can still have snow <laughs> way yeah. into the spring. I would say comfortably we can say that this, it stopped snowing by at least June. <laughs> so it snowed in May before. So it has yeah. snowed in May before. Absolutely. So I think July... We can safely say, as New Hampshire people, it's reasonable. It's not going to be snowy. That that's safe, safe bet. Thank you. So now this puts us at late two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. So a man had allegedly given Maura Murray's father a knife, mm. a stained, rusted knife, and this man claimed this knife was from his brother, which is interesting. Which is interesting because this man's brother lives less than a mile from where Maura Murray crashed her car. And this is called the A-frame house theory because right. this man lived in an A-frame house. 
Which is disgusting, first of all. Yes. Um, just, it's very, yeah. Taste, tastefully ugly. So this man, who gave Maura Murray's father the knife, had said that several days after her disappearance, he was acting very strangely, mm-hmm. and he ended up scrapping his car. Interesting. Which you don't usually do <laughs> just on a whim. Yeah. You don't just get rid of your car. Very, very suspicious. And so the man's family, the man who had given Maura Murray's father the knife, the man's family had said that the story was made up for money because this man had a history of substance use. But it's a little scary because the story does seem to carry some weight with what they found next. Mm -hmm. So this now brings us to October 2006. They're still searching for Maura. That's just a note if you're not sure. That's two years later. Yeah. Almost three. Almost three. Yeah. Okay. Terrifying. Yeah. So volunteers are leading a two-day search near where her car was, and because the house of the man with the knife, allegedly, right. was so close to where Maura Murray disappeared, they were searching near that area as well. Mm-hmm. And they'd actually been allowed permission inside of the house because so many years had gone by and the family had been reluctant that yeah. it changed owners, and now the right. owners are like, yes, of course. So now they're searching with cadaver dogs, which if you guys don't know, it's, it's dogs that search for deceased. They're trained specifically to detect the scent of dead human bodies. Yes. Not animals, not living humans. If there was somebody who was deceased, no longer breathing, they alert to that by These barking. dogs pick it up. Yes. Correct. They're trained to bark. They're kind of like drug dogs, but for the deceased, they, they bark and they signal to their owners that there's something here. Yes. So they bring the cadaver dogs around the home into the home and they went upstairs into a bedroom and there was a closet inside of the bedroom and this is where the cadaver dogs go ape shit <laughs> they go they lose their minds they're, they're barking crazy. they're snarling they just go unhinged and, and these so, these are dogs that are trained not to bark period right because they're trained specifically for that cadaver they're trained so well they do not bark unless they are being serious so there's something in this closet scary so the father had hired, it seems like, a private investigator, and the private investigator was also doing work because mm-hmm. the police department kind of... As they do. To put it lightly, was, was lacking in this case, it seems. So the private investigator had found that some of the floorboards inside of this closet had what seemed to be bloodstains. And you don't just have bloodstains in you your closet. Who, who has blood? Right. <laughs> who I know. has blood on the floor in their closet? Like, not me personally. Right. Not me. That's, that's very... My, ca- my closet is carpeted, so that's partially right. why there's no bloodstains so on the floor. that's very sinister. Very... That is very sinister. So the private investigator gets the, the samples tested, mm-hmm. and the first sample comes back, and they say that this blood sample is for sure a male. For sure. So that's interesting. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know... She fought back. Though, yeah. And then the second blood stain was ruled to be different from the first, but it was it came back inconclusive. So basically, it wasn't from the same person. It, it correct. That it was, was enough to person. tell... It was something an... had happened to you. Even if that second blood sample was not Maura Murray, something, a little sketch, had happened in this closet. So the private investigator and the father take the knife... The rusted, blood-stained knife. Naturally. And the samples of the wood, and they bring them to the police, as one does. Um, Nothing ends up happening with this, and it's partially due to the chain of command with evidence. Right. So, because the police themselves did not collect this evidence, it wouldn't hold up in a court of law, and it would be thrown out. Which, and that could be, like, a key piece of evidence. Absolutely. So, that says a lot. It's so frustrating. And I see, I see why it would be withheld, I guess, because, you know, you only get one shot to convict somebody. And right. And if, if you bring in evidence that could get thrown out and throw the whole case, you, you don't want to risk it. But exactly. it's, it seems like very damning evidence. It does. It absolutely does. A bloody knife. In and the blood home, on the floor. In the home of someone who lived very close. And we're talking... Less than a mile. Woodsville, New Hampshire, that area of New Hampshire is, like, maybe one house per every, like, six moose. Like, it's there. (laughs) There's not. It's up there. It's in the mountains. Yeah. Uh, It's no service. That should indicate to you that there's not a lot going on up there in regards to people and community. So, the fact that this happened, they found this evidence in this home so close. Something's going on. Something's going on. Something's going on. 
yeah. So that is the A-frame house theory. That's another theory that this man had harmed Mora. Now, I don't know if you have any more theories. Do you? Tell me about them right now. So there's, there's another... There's so th- many. There's so many because this case went nationwide and the FBI got so involved so soon. And so many people I mean, were Oxygen waiting. did a six-part series and there's documentaries and family interviews and this people, case blew up. People were waiting for more to come home. Yes. And she did. And people are going to speculate, naturally. Some of the things are pretty damning, if I'll be honest. Yeah, absolutely. So the third theory, um, it's called the Loon, the Loon Mountain Three. Or the three loon men. So where this was, it was kind of near Loon Mountain Ski area, and you know, very popular. Very popular, yeah. I know a lot of people we went to high school with Liz that go there all the time for skiing. That's gross. I'm never going there. <laughs> Just kidding. Love you. <laughs> but anyway, anywho. Love so you. these three men from Loon Mountain that had worked there, they would have been driving on the same road, if not very, very close to where Morris' car was. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very possible that these three men would have passed Mora. Yeah. And the thing is, is that the next day, all three of these men neglected to show up for work. Very suspicious. Which is very suspicious because it was, you know, first of all, it's, it's three guys. Yeah. What geez. are the odds that all three of them would call in sick or not just not show up to work unannounced and explained? It's so unlikely. And part of the theory is that maybe Mora had been hesitant to accept help from Butch because, you know, if you look up a picture of this guy, it's, it's, it's a little scary. Yeah, he, yeah, he's Butch. Yeah, it's a little scary. Yeah. And maybe she would have been more inclined to have, had, yeah. to have potentially accept help or have gone willingly with these men because they mm-hmm. were closer to her in age. Absolutely. I think I would even agree with that. Yeah. Um, especially given she was cold and she was hurt and Freezing. she can't drive alone. a car three it's on the back yeah. road middle of nowhere february three young guys pull up right power yeah. numbers i guess I don't yeah know. no I true don't know. not all three of them couldn't hurt me you know it's more they wouldn't one of them probably would be okay with it or like they're not I mean, a team oh. there's we so, don't know so that's, that's a that's good a one. theory as well that's kind of a, um, a vaguer theory about mm-hmm. the mountain three there is one more thing that happened and this was recently um, this was in 2019. Fred, on his own, got more cadaver dogs, and he searched another house and found what well, he, you know, this was his private thing. He searched another, ho- another house that was nearby, mm-hmm. and the dogs alerted in the basement. Like, they did their whole sit, bark, and freak out thing. Mm-hmm. Then they brought in, like, a thermal camera or... Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. I don't I think thermal is the right word, but some kind of, like, camera thing that showed there was something underneath the concrete in the basement. So they went ahead and they dug it up. It was a piece of, like, pottery it was, or, like, an old pipe. They yeah. couldn't distinguish. It was not... There was nothing. No, and then to quote Fred, he said there was absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing it there. Was, you know, you're... This was 2019, so that's two years ago. Yeah. You're searching and searching for your daughter for 15 years. And then you get, you know, maybe, just maybe. And then right. it's just a pipe. It, right, a piece of pottery or something. It's, it's I cannot terrible. even imagine how devastating that would be. Now, there is another thing that I read. It's very sad because, as we've said many times now, she'd been missing since that night in mm-hmm. 2004. There has been a tradition that this family did every year and they had a big blue ribbon tied around the tree where she crashed her car and it's known as the blue ribbon tree and every year there's a vigil held at this tree for mora because of course family members come people from all over come they pray they send her well wishes you know they say come home all the sweet stuff well within the last year you'll never fucking guess the city decided to cut it down cut the tree down cut the tree down Actually, it wasn't the city. It was, like, the land's owner. He cut it down, and they begged, and they, they filed motions, and they said, please, this is, you know, our daughter. This is where we come memorialize her. They went ahead, and they cut it down. Isn't that bull? I have shit. no words. You have to be... You wow. have to be sinister. Wow. I, now, I can't say for sure that it was just the one tree that was cut down. And but like, it was the tree. It was the tree. The blue ribbon tree. Yeah. I don't they, know if they cut they the whole, to... they cleared the whole place. I don't know. But they cut down a tree specifically memorializing Maura Murray. And it, it, it's no secret that they do this. It's It's been going on 
for 15 years since this girl disappeared. Yeah. There's a big blue ribbon on it. Hello. It's it's clearly signifying something. You Ridiculous. have to. Wow. I do believe now there is a st- like a little memorial. Oh, gee. Which is great, but mm, hmm, why it, did would they. It would be nicer next to the blue ribbon tree. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And it was like a big blue ribbon like you put on like a car. Oh, yeah. my God. Very pretty. So, insult to injury, salt to the wounds. Are you kidding me? That makes me want to cry. That's so sad. Isn't that terrible? Terrible. Blows my mind that some people are that heartless. Wow. But anywho. Yeah. I think that's the case of Maura Murray. That's that's the case of Maura Murray. And there's so much more information on it, you guys. Um, I mean, Oxygen, the six-part series, super informative. And there, you could really get down a rabbit hole with this case if you if it really intrigues you and you wanted to learn a lot more about it because there's so much more we didn't talk about in cover. Oh, yeah. And the truth is, this is a widely covered topic. Mm-hmm. She is a very famous missing persons case. And, I mean, rightfully so. I feel like every missing person should be famous Absolutely. for that. Um, but it's very well known. We probably didn't even scratch the surface. Right. There's so much there's about so, her. We could do a whole podcast dedicated to just... And there are podcasts dedicated just to her. Yeah. It's an insane, heartbreaking case. She left behind two brothers and two sisters, a dad and a mom. And it's also kind of important that it goes with one of the theories is that, you know, she, if she did run away and she was still alive, her sisters were saying there's no way she would have done that because since then her mother has passed (gasps) and her sisters said there's no way she would have let her mom die alone. She would have come forward. So... It's just one of those things you could speculate all day and night, but at the end of the day, she's she's missing. Something, yeah, and something happened to this girl. She, it's tragic. It's very sad. Um, so, just heartbreaking. Yeah, and the case was actually reopened in 2017, mm-hmm. and it's it's still ongoing to my knowledge. So, a lot yeah. of stuff to d- dive into for that, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but ultimately. That is the case of Maura Murray. That's the case of Maura Murray. A sad tale. Um, very close to home for us for a few reasons. Of course, New Hampshire and then nursing. Mm-hmm. I know that seems like to be such a small part of it, but, it you know, in the nursing community, that's a huge part. Huge. Because when you're a nursing student, you're a nurse. Like, we count you, you know, like, it's, you're part of our community. Right. Um, so it's like, it's just heartbreaking. An aspiring nurse. And she was smart. Brilliant. I mean, West Point, mm-hmm. that's no joke. Chemical engineering. No first joke. Come on. No joke. Genius. So it, it's hard, you know. And I, I can't imagine her, her family. They're growing up and they're still looking for their sister. So sad. But, that's that's the case of Maura Murray. And, my God, I am so thankful for all two of you who tuned <laughs> in and said, I'm gonna give this podcast a little chance because. Just then, that's two more people who know about Maura Murray. Right. There you go. Fantastic. Yeah. And then even the smaller cases we go on to cover that no, like the FBI didn't get involved in and there's no yep. six-part series and documentaries. Right. And that's going to be really cool too once we cover the, the small cases to bring some light to those as well. Yeah. So for, for everyone to just kind of listen and hear and bring awareness to certain mm-hmm. cases, I know personally I have a very close-to-home case that involves a little girl going missing and she's never been found and to my knowledge the FBI wasn't involved it was just a small town case right. and that was 37 years ago so it's it's like anyone who can listen and bring even just a slight bit of knowledge mm-hmm. what to the fa- fact that this could bring closure to some families by spreading the podcast in their story then yeah, I'll for do sure. I'll do it forever. Sounds good. For all two of you, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, even if like one person listens, that's one more person that... Well, one person will, it's me. I will listen. To... And I'll listen to... That's hey! two people! <laughs> Yay! All right. So, okay, so all three of us, wink. Crazy. <laughs> um, but that, I think that pretty much wraps up our very first episode of True Crime New England. Yeah, very exciting. I am so happy that we were able to do this. Yeah. True crime is very important to us Mm -hmm. and to a lot of people. So if you want to listen, please, you can find us on many different apps. Uh, You can find us on Instagram 
and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. Mm-hmm. You can also email us at TrueCrimeNE.com. Uh, gmail.com, of course. I don't even think I need to say that. Who doesn't? Comcast? Oh, my God. <laughs> AOL. AOL, yeah. Yeah. I'll just I'll use my MapQuest to go. <laughs> just kidding. Um, and you can also, of course, find us on Spotify, uh, Apple, uh, iTunes. Yeah, wherever you guys like to listen to your podcasts. So we hope to hear from you, and we hope you join us on our next episode. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye.